The scripture today is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today, we begin a new sermon series. A sermon series called Final Words. A person's final words tend to make a statement, leave a lasting impression. We tend to pay attention to them. A woman told me before, uh, right after the second service, uh, the first service, this is the second one, the first service before she was leaving, and she said, you know, my husband's final words were, I have had the best life. What a blessing. John Wesley, who was the founder of the United Methodist Church, he offered last words of this. He said, the best of all is God is with us. Mother Teresa's last words were, Jesus, I love you. And Jack Sue, who was an actor on the old Barney Miller show, said for his last words, it must have been the coffee. (laughs) Today we begin studying the last words of none other than Jesus. We want to hear what Jesus has to say. What is that lasting impression he wants to leave with us in his earthly life? This is the series we will have for the season of Lent. Lent began last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday and will carry us through until Easter Sunday morning when a new season begins. Lent is traditionally the time in our lives when we uh, focus on growing in faith. It's a season of prayer, a season of self-reflection. It's a season in which we're praying, asking Christ, how do you want us to change in order to be more and more like you? How do you want us to change, to grow more as a disciple? So for the next six weeks, we're going to spend our time here, sitting at the foot of the cross, listening, because this is where Jesus gives his final words. And I invite you to join me as we sit together here and listen. Would you pray with me? Oh, holy, holy God. We gather around the cross today. We gather around with open hearts and open minds and open ears that we would hear the words that your Son, Christ, has to say. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight alone, O Lord. For you are our rock, our refuge, and our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. As a pastor and a hospital chaplain, I have been with many people as they were dying. 
And often the person who is dying is unable to speak at that point. But those of us in the room are often the ones doing the talking. We're praying. We're reading scripture. Sometimes we're singing. A lot of times I'll ask the people who were there in the room to stand around the bed and share a favorite story and to be sure to share how much they appreciate and what they appreciate most about the person who is in the process of passing away. I've heard hospice nurses, too, come into that moment and say that some of the most important words that we can share in those moments are, I love you, I'm sorry, and I forgive you. Interesting, then, that this first of Jesus' last words are about that very thing, about love and about forgiveness. The scripture that Ken read for us today captures these last words. They come from the Gospel of Luke, from a section we call the Passion Narrative. The Passion Narrative covers the story of the suffering and death of Jesus And it appears in slightly different versions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The differences between them are kind of interesting. One of those differences is that the words that we heard read today only appear in the Gospel of Luke and none of the other three. And if you look in your Bible, you'll probably see double brackets around these final words of Jesus. And then if you follow the footnote to the bottom of the page, which is usually a good thing to do to see what that note says, it will tell you that this phrase does not appear in some of the earliest manuscripts. What is that all about? Some scholars believe that this was in there and in some of the earlier manuscripts, and then it was removed for a season for various reasons and then returned. Other scholars believe that it wasn't there to begin with, and it was added by some scribes later on from some other traditions and stories that were heard. Regardless, it has stayed in the Gospel of Luke ever since now for centuries. And it fits well in with the themes of the Gospel of Luke, and it fits well with what Jesus models and teaches and says in the rest of his ministry. And so we hang on to these words, and we hear them, and we welcome them. Because they show us something about the character of God And what it is that God's Son, Jesus, reveals to us about God. It's important when we look at Scripture to know what's going on in the context. So what's happening when Jesus says these words? What is it that comes before? In Luke's version of the story, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the first time. He's gathered his disciples together for this final Passover meal, and then he goes out to the Mount of Olives to pray. While he's there, his disciple Judas betrays his location, and people come to arrest Jesus there. He's brought then to the high priest's house, where he is later mocked and beaten. He's then tried by a number of folks, the religious council, by Pilate, by Herod. The religious charge against him is blasphemy. The Roman charge against him is treason, though Pilate has a little trouble with that. And the crowd is squeaky and loud, and they get their way, and they want Jesus to be crucified. Anne Weems writes in the book, Kneeling in Jerusalem, 
that essentially what happens is the innocent one, the righteous one, the holy one, is put to death because the ones in charge of politics want to hold on to their crowns and the ones in charge of religion want to hold on to their keys to the church. Jesus is flogged, sentenced to death by execution on a cross, and this was a common punishment for those who were deemed to be a threat to power. The soldiers take Jesus to a place in Luke called the Skull. It's also called Calvary. It's also called Golgotha. And this was the usual site for such executions where the crosses would all be seen. Crucifixion was this inhumane procedure in which people were tortured and stripped and nailed to a beam and displayed outside the city near a main thoroughfare where people would see them when they walked by. And the people who walked by would often mock and jeer and shame those who were dying. And Jesus was one of many people who died this way a criminal among criminals. Some of the worst of humanity's evils. If you want a fairly gruesome depiction of it, you can watch the movie The Passion. You'll get a taste of it. The Gospels don't go into all the gory details, perhaps in part because it was so familiar to them. Reverend Fleming Rutledge says that the people in that culture already knew what it looked like sounded like and smelled like. And I share all of that to say that when someone speaks under those conditions, it is an incredibly painful thing to do. And so we listen when Jesus, as he's dying, shares these final Words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus' last words are of love and forgiveness. And this is the heart of God revealed in the Son of God. Fleming Rutledge writes that this is one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith because we wouldn't make this up. That the human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Messiah. That the Holy One who is most powerful, would die like a criminal among criminals for all those who are not holy and offering them love. It is a hard thing to fathom. I was having a conversation last Sunday after the services with our Christian counselor on staff, Keith Priest. I told him I was going to talk about him today, but it's a good thing. And Keith and I were talking, and and he was saying, oh, I bet you're glad to be done with the heaviness of the Soul Care series. And I said, yes, those were some heavy sermons. And then I said, but wait a minute, we're about to spend the next six weeks at the foot of the cross. And that is a heavy and awful place as well. And he looked at me and said he disagreed. He had a big smile on his face. 
He said, no, Emily, this is where we are healed. I thought, yeah, it works like that, doesn't it? We're both right. It is an awful, horrible thing, a cross. And this is where we are healed and saved and made new and offered hope and forgiveness. What is it that Jesus is forgiving in us? Why go to all this? The word that we use is sin. It's a pretty churchy word. Uh, We don't usually talk about it much outside of church. It's a word that often makes people uncomfortable. It makes us think of angry preachers who shout. And it makes us sometimes think of bad experiences we've had in other churches. It can make us think of shame. And I want to spend a little time describing what sin is today, how we think about it. One of the common ways to describe it is that it's missing the mark of the life of love to which Christ calls us. There are many different ways to describe it. Augustine called it misordered love, that we love the wrong things or we love the right things, but in the wrong way and love something other than or more than we love God. H. Richard Niebuhr called it misordered loyalties and that we give our allegiance to something less than God because human beings can make a God out of anything. And what does it look like when we live into it? Sin is self-centeredness and selfishness and pride and being judgmental or having a twisted ego. It's adultery and idolatry and lust and prejudice. It's emphasizing power and money over people. It's being impatient or greedy or just plain mean some days. It's being vengeful. It's having very few filters on our mouths or our social media posts when we might need them most. I don't know what you struggle with, but I know we all have our struggles because we're human and it's a given and it's universal. Sin affects everything, not just individuals, but organizations and governments, anything that's made up of human beings. And Augustine says we get caught in the grip of it. And it's hard to get out from under the weight. It's not something we can do on our own. It causes brokenness between us and others and ourselves, between us and God. And we need help to get out from under the weight of it. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's where this awful gift of a cross comes in. That's where the birth and life and teachings and death and resurrection of Christ come in. This is what God does for us as we turn toward Christ in repentance. And he frees us from its reign in our lives. Wesley used to say that sin would no longer reign, but it would still remain. Because we keep coming back to God for forgiveness. A clergy friend of mine told me a story years ago about an example of sin and forgiveness in his church. 
He said it was a Christmas Eve service, and often at Christmas Eve services, you know, we'll have communion together and we'll come forward. In those days when we used to come forward for communion, which we will do again one day, I know it, and we'll eat Hawaiian bread together and it will be wonderful. Um, it's coming. But it was one of those Christmas Eve services when everyone was coming down for communion. And there was a gentleman he noticed who took the communion elements and he knelt right at the far edge of what was the altar rail at that church. And he started crying as he was kneeling there and he didn't get up. And in fact, he didn't get up when everybody else went back to their seats. And then the next group came in and everybody went back to their seats and that man stayed right there. And the pastor said he kind of kept an eye on him throughout the rest of the service. And after the benediction, uh, my friend said he went over and knelt beside him and said, how can I help? And the man said to him, I get it. I finally get it. Why Jesus came. Why Jesus died. Why Jesus rose again. My whole life I talked about it. But today, I get it. He said, I've been wrestling with sin my whole life. He said, uh, many, many years ago when I used to be married, I uh, committed adultery um, on my first wife. And he said, it broke my relationship not only with my wife but with my children. I was so selfish in my marriage. I've carried that with me for so many years. And tonight was the first time I felt forgiven. When we're forgiven, it is freeing for us. The man said he felt so light he wasn't sure he could get up yet. The earthly consequences, right from the things that we do to one another, that's different. This is God's forgiveness of us. And it's freeing. And I like the way that Alan Culpepper writes about it. He says, if our lives have been changed by a personal experience of God's grace, we can never get over the fact that we have been forgiven as we are. And then God's love, not sin, becomes the controlling force in our lives. And such gratitude like that cannot be faked. It requires an absolute transparent humility before God because God sees in us all that is worth redeeming and calls forth new life. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing, that refers not only to the soldiers who are crucifying him it it applies to all of us because seriously all of us do not know what we are doing most of the time and we're not aware of the impact that our choices and actions and words have on others and the damage it can cause so when Jesus says father forgive them for they know not what they are doing that covers all of us to turn to Christ and seek that forgiveness beside the man at the altar rail when it's time for communion.
a cross is a strange thing. I think it's strange that we walk around and wear these symbols of torture, actually. I wear them too. Around my neck, our bracelet, we have them hanging in our sanctuaries. In God's love, that has been transformed. And it is now a symbol of love, a symbol of grace, a symbol of forgiveness because God can take the ugliest of whatever it is in this world and make something good come out of it. And redeem what's there worth redeeming. That includes each one of us. But you notice that a cross has the two beams, right? Because every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because forgiveness is both a gift and a responsibility. A gift that we receive from God that God gives us as a responsibility to then work to forgive others. And we could spend a whole sermon series on that. Because forgiveness is complicated and difficult and in some cases may be a long process of years to reach. I don't want to take that lightly. But here today, that it works like that. And maybe the next time you see a cross or put one on, we'll think about it. This is a symbol of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And may we hear those words. Father, forgive. Amen.